Welcome to the What's the Revolution show, a show for men and the people who love them, where we talk about how men can find and embrace the healthiest versions of themselves. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corpru. What's good, revolutionaries? As usual, I hope that you are doing well, that your families are well, that even though we have been mired in unrest and still in this pandemic where cities are closing down, that you are finding ways to take care of yourself. And you always know that we here at What's Your Revolution are here for you to help you answer what we think is the most thought-provoking question of your life, but also to provide you with help, to provide you with solace, to provide you with friendship, to provide you with a roadmap of how you can move through your revolution. And just make sure, reach out, reach out, because we here are with you. We are with our people. And I want to jump in so quickly into today's show because I have been trying to get this brother on my show probably since we were in college when there was no show, but I knew this brother was going to be great. I knew this brother was going to be amazing. We used to actually used to call each other like 1%, not even 5%, right? <laughs> right? Dog, do you remember we used to be walking around school? What's up, 1%? Whoa. Right, right. We weren't just a talented Tim. You were talented 1%. <laughs> 1%. <laughs> right? We, people be looking at us like, what is going on? Like, yeah, we are the 1%. We are the most intellectual Black men on this campus. He was, I wasn't, I just rode along on his coattails, but. Lies. <laughs> Lies. I want to welcome to the show, right, my boy. Like, and I get to say this, like my boy, my college homie, right, history major, James Madison University, uh, class of 1993, Cornell Belcher. That's right. You heard that, right? You heard that, revolutionaries. Cornell Belcher, CEO of, I want to make sure I got it right, Brilliant Corners, right? Research. That's right. Brilliant Corners Researcher. This brother is one of the top pollsters in the country. And if you remember, you probably have seen him on CNN, MSNBC. You think of an outlet or a medium. This brother has been on talking about what's going on in the political sphere, right? And as a black man, right, doing his thing. Cornell Belcher joins me, Dr. Charles Corpru, on the What's Your Revolution show. And I'm like, ah, yes. <laughs> What's it up, is, Cornell Belcher? It is my pleasure, brother. I am so incredibly proud of you and what you're doing, what you're using your, your vehicle for here. And look, I, I always thought you were revolutionary when I when I first saw you on campus. I just didn't know if it was going to be a revolution that was going to be helpful or harmful to people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so we're going to have that kind of show. All right. <laughs> and you know, probably back then it was harmful to a lot of people. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> no, you've turned the revolution around. The revolution yeah. now is helpful. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Look, for all those people out there, I'm a better man now. <laughs> all right. You don't have to hate me like you used to. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and that's your revolution, brother. And that's your that revolution. Is, that is my revolution. You are not lying. Look, for all, all, all the people listening, like, like I said, my brother Cornell, we went to James Madison University, early 90s coming up, really trying to understand what it was like to be Black and prominent and smart, to be history majors, to understand what, what was it like for our people to come through and pave the way for us. And I am extremely, you know, you talk about being proud of me, man. I'm extremely, you know, proud of the work. It sound, I don't even want it to sound condescending, but like, like, brother, you have, like, transcended us all. Like, you know, there's Paul and Brian and myself, and then there's you, right? 
there's you, Cornell Belcher, who is, you know, you are making change in the world. And, you know, really as a pollster, you are taking the heartbeat of our country and really understanding what it means to be politically literate or politically illiterate in some, in, you know, in some stances and how to use that information, how to use that history degree and also that, you know, that institute, of, politi- right, that institute of politics from Harvard University. I mean, I don't want to, you know, <laughs> I don't want to leave that off, you know, and using that information and really making sure that we have the ability to go out and do our civic duty. So thank you for all that you do. And as I said in the green room today, Cornell, I asked my guests this first question, brother, what's your revolution? And it is a fantastic question. And again, as one who asks questions for a living, that is a fantastic question because you can can have a 40-minute conversation on that question alone. But first, let me say this. I think I am... The friends that we surround ourselves with in college, I don't think I've I've ascended them. I think we all, you know, as Gordon Parks talked about in, in biography, we all have a choice of weapons. I think you have made your choice of weapon in, in the fight, and this is your vehicle for, for doing that. I think we've made all, all our choices of weapons, and we're, and we're fighting our battles where we can, which also sort of connects with, with what my revolution is. Ma, as growing up in, in the South and in, in Virginia, I was grew up in Tidewater on the coast of Virginia. Maury High School, uh, correct? Maury High School, go Commodores. And, and they, although they keep trying to move Virginia out of the South, Virginia. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, since they, when Doug Wilder became governor of Virginia, they were like, oh, you're not going to Southern State anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Even though Richmond was the cradle of the Confederacy. Right, exactly. But I, I grew up in a in, in a in a mixed neighborhood, rather integrated neighborhood, and we back that that then we played baseball. I don't think I know the kids don't play baseball anymore. At least Mountain American kids don't play baseball anymore. But, but we spent most of our time playing baseball, and you know, and Norfolk's a big port city, in home of the the Atlantic Fleet, and so you had a, a, a interesting mix of people from all, not only all over the country, but all over the world, and a large Filipino population, et cetera. And we'd all come together and play baseball and just hang out and have a good time. And we were just, you know, friends. But then you'd go back to a friend's house and there'd be a Confederate flag. And you'd go, okay, you know, and, and early I didn't understand what that was going on and what's that all about, right? How, you know, how can we share so much in common and share a common space of friendship and camaraderie outside of the home, but yet there is a Confederate flag at your spot. And and what's that all about? So I've always been fascinated in why people behave politically the way they behave. You know, especially growing up as a child of the South, why is it that that we're still fighting these these battles from ages ago? And how can we continue to struggle with questions of, of race and Americanness? So I've always been fascinated by those questions, but I also, as a, you know, and again, going back to Gordon Parks, this ideal of if, if you're going to be, if you're a conscious, a, ma- a conscious brother, at some point you have to choose a weapon to fight against injustice. And my choice of weapons was going to be politics and the social sciences. You know, I was also very into Du Bois and Du Bois using social science as a vehicle to to improve the life situation of black people and really try to bring a better understanding and sort of fight racism through social sciences. 
so for me, it was it was marrying that sort of those those two ideas together. You know, my choice of weapon was going to be politics and, and social science to try to try to bring about some modicum of change in the world and go out there and fight for it to, to, to make things better. And so, you know, my revolution has been ongoing is, is how do I bring more voice and more representation to the table, to the, to the political table? How do I get the voice of more people who've historically been at the margins? How do I get those voices more engaged in, in the political conversation and, and have them be at, at that table? So politics and social sciences is, is my choice of weapons. And my life has been dedicated to that. I mean, we talk about, I mean, one of the struggles, I think, Corporal, of, of brothers who've reached a modicum of success is that we don't have jobs, we have we have careers. And careers are bigger than jobs. They're, I, I don't separate, there's no separation between me and what my work is. That, you know, I am my work and my work is me to a certain extent. Now, there's a great downside to that. I mean, Lord knows I can't I can't stay in a relationship because I'm married <laughs> to my I'm married to my business. Right. But that's in sort of the struggle for that and the struggle to sort of to bring more voices to that political space is the work of my life. Mm. So that's kind of my revolution. And but but also just more on a more on an individual sort of level. My revolution is ongoing because I, I keep trying to shake off a lot of what we've learned to be to be right and and what culture has said is right and acceptable. And I think that is a struggle. That is an ongoing push. And I think we all sort of fight those battles along along the way. One of the things that that I think my revolution is sort of ongoing is is to always try to lead with love. Yes, yes. And, you know, that was, that's something that, that, that came to me, quite frankly, in college, I think, you know, and, and I think in one, in one of my philosophy classes, this ideal, and especially, you know, around the teachings of King is how radical is this ideal of simply love, mm. right? What happens if we start making our decisions from a place of love? What happens not only on an individual basis, but what happens to American policy if American policy is based on love? Like we're going to make our decisions based on on love, right? And if we're supposed to be a Judeo-Christian nation, well, certainly that shouldn't even be a crazy sort of thing to even think about, but it is. And I, I think my revolution is I'm, and I'm not perfect at it, but I'm trying to get better at making decisions based on love more on the ideal of love and less on the ideals of self-interest immediate gratification which is tough and it's a and it's an ongoing thing but that's sort of my my long-winded rambling answer to your question about revolution right no no and and there's so there's you're right there's a 40-minute conversation right (laughs) there's definitely Right in there, Cornell. You know what I what I heard, man, and what I want to unpack is that around this this opportunity for your revolution is to give voice to the voiceless. And I often think, right, when I see these polls, when I see this information about people's attitudes and thoughts about what's going on in the electorate, and I'm like, nobody's talking to me. I, I don't know if I've ever been polled, 
And, but then I hear all of these politicians say, well, Americans feel this way, or most Americans feel this way. I'm like, I've, I've never been polled. And I don't think that Bertha and Charles Corpru have ever been polled. And my father's 91 and my mother's 80 and, and your family being however old. I don't know if we've ever sat at the table and said, well, how did you feel about that poll you took today? And that's problematic because that, that means that our voices, at least the three of us, right? Our voices have never been put into perspectives when it comes to critical issues that are, that are impacting policy. And I talk about this all the time in my work, Cornell, is that policy changes people's behavior. People have to act right? Mm -hmm. If we look at, if we look at what's been going on in our country and people are like, I don't want to wear this mask. Well, if you're going to get a fine, if you don't wear this mask, you're going to wear that mask because you don't want to pay that fine. That's policy. But when there's some, you know, admonishment or we're going to have these loose rules, right? That doesn't mean, and you haven't polled me to ask, how does it affect my community? And so what you're saying is that around politics, right? And political science and social, social science, you have the ability and you're making the way for black and brown folks to have their voices heard. Why is that so important now, right? Ever more than any, and we're both, you, you know, in the green room we talked about, we're both connoisseurs of history, but right now in this moment, why are our voices really as in the polls so important? Let me un un unpack a couple pieces there. And, and cause that's an important question. It's an important point. Well, one is on the side of polling, we have to be more inclusive about letting polls and sort of the, the universe of, of people we're trying to, take, trying to take a measure of and that minority voices are in fact important and they should be represent, represented in, in our snapshots of trends and attitudes. That said, if I'm doing a, most people in the, in, in the country will, won't ever be polled, particularly around politics, because unfortunately, a, a lot of people in this country live in, in flyover states. And for better or worse, if you, you hear the cuts, you know, the polling from the battleground states, which, you know, there's basically seven or eight states that are, are constantly in, in flux or in competition that will decide a major say in which way this country goes. And that's sort of a problematic with our electoral system. But that aside, just like your doctor doesn't have to take all of your blood to understand what's going on inside of you. He, only, he or she only has to take a sample of it. We only need to take a sample of, of, of the population to understand what the views or attitudes of the population are because of the theories of randomness. Now, I'm not going to go back into our system <laughs> and break down why the theory of randomness works. But let's just say because of the theory of randomness, polling works. But the question becomes, well, even around the electoral, around the electorate, around the, the ideal of a likely voter, air quotes, that is fraught with danger because what is a likely voter? You know, in, I, I love to tell the story, in, in 2012, and I knew some of the people, uh, I knew the people working the polling operation for Mitt Romney. I didn't did corporate work with them. They really did think Mitt Romney was going to beat Barack Obama and was going to win handily. And I worked on both Barack Obama campaigns. They really did think they were going to be Barack Obama. They thought they were going to be Barack Obama handedly because their snapshot, what they thought the universe was going to be, was not in fact what the universe turned out to be. They had they didn't think that their universe didn't include as many young people and brown people as the actual real universe was because they were stepping to it with their frame of reference, and they would argue that 2008 was an outlier, and there's no way that we're going to that young people 
and black people and, and Latino people were not going to be, are not that mobilized, that energized again. So the electorate is going to be way wider, way older, more conservative. This is why representation is, is, is problematic, because if I were part of Mitt Romney's polling team, I would have looked at the same set, set of data they, they've been looking at. And I could have told them that that while the energy might not be there, the determination around who this guy is, is still very much there. So that electorate is is going to be as a proportion is going to be just as young and just as brown. So your model is off. And and that's what their model was. What they had as a likely voting universe was, in fact, not the the, the likely voting use that that universe that turned out on Election Day because they didn't let enough diversity in. And my point is, we got to let more diversity, got to let more diversity in. But to your point about the, the power of, of pollsters, I think I take my job very seriously as, as a soldier in democracy. And soldier might be the wrong word, but as a as a guardian of democracy, because part of my job is, in fact, to say to, to policymakers that, no, this is where the majority of, of the people are. And therefore, our policies should reflect where the majority of people are. And if you're not in line from a policy standpoint where the people want you to be, well, then you're then it's problematic. So I think, you know, and, and a lot of people don't get this, but I really do take my job as a as a pollster serious as as an important and integral to maintaining our democracy, because we tell these motherfuckers that they're wrong. And this is where the people are. This is where the people are. And this is where your policy should be. At least some of us who who take that role, that role seriously. So and, and I spend a lot of time at these at, at certain tables that they let me at, arguing specifically for policy positions of, again, the people that I started talking about, the people who've historically been at the margins and voiceless in, in our politics. I'm always going to talk about policies from the perspective of where people of color are. Right, right. Cornell, you know, you know, in the wake of George Floyd and what we're seeing now as, you know, this influx of major corporations, institutions across the country, institutions across the world, stating, making grand, and I'm going to call it a grand gesture, right? I'm going to call it a grand gesture because a gesture can be a one-time occasion. It can be an instance. I'm going to make this grand gesture. And oftentimes it's, it's, let me place this statement about Black lives or Black and Indigenous people of color and how we support matters that are important to these groups of people. But you're talking about, and we've been spending a little time talking about policy change. Why are these grand gestures almost a nullification of the movements that we actually need to happen in these institutions and organizations across the world? Why are these grand gestures almost a slap in the face? This is complicated, but part of my job is also, and I, and I said this after I, I, shortly when I was going around touring with my, my book, A Black Man in the White House, that was sort of talking about racial aversion and its impact on, on politics. My job is not to make people comfortable. And, and frankly, too many people are comfortable. So I'm going to say some uncomfortable things. Brother, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Mm. We can't. And when I look at the data today, look, in 2008, in battleground states in 2008, you had more white voters who thought reverse discrimination was a bigger issue than classic racial discrimination. All right. Wow. And I want you to, to, to understand that. And part of the conversation, part of the struggle that we've had with the conversation about race and racism in this country is that the large swath of white people didn't see racism as 
as being a part of this country, as racism as even being a thing, to the point where they thought reverse discrimination was a bigger problem than discrimination. Now, the conversations that you have with someone across the table from you who doesn't even think what you're talking about is a real thing is different than the conversation that you're having across the table from that person when they understand that what you're talking about is in fact real. Mm-hmm. And when you look at now the polling data that said, showed that, that upwards of 60% of white Americans now think that racism is a big problem in this country, brother, that's fucking revolutionary shit, okay? <laughs> that is an inflection point like we've probably never seen in modern times. Because now the conversations can be different, right? And and our job is not to beat up on them for where they were, right? We can do that. It can make us feel good. But that is the enemy of progress. Mm-hmm. Progress is going to say, I don't care how the fuck you got here, but now you're here and now you and now you're open to this conversation about racism. So now we can back to policy. So now we can have a policy conversation about tackling racial incidents and discrimination in a way that we couldn't have when they would argue that it does not exist. So I'm not going to beat up on on people for for joining it now. I'm going to be thankful that we're at an inflection moment where where the consciousness of of America can change. Wow. So let's not beat up on that. Let's not let's not go to the negative on that, right? The first rule of politics, politics 101, and this is this is something that Howard Dean Talk to told, told me and he, and he preaches it. Politics 101 is take what you can get when you can get it and then go back for more. Right. And I so think we gotta have a we gotta have a maturity about our, in our community, especially with some of our more radical voices, that this this ideal of purism and not compromising and not that not taking what you can get and then coming back for, for more is not politically astute or helpful, right? I'm as for black. For black liberation and power as, as anyone, but I'm not gonna let I'm not gonna let the, the the good be the 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 enemy of the perfect. I'm gonna go to that table and I'm gonna take what I can get when I can get it. And then guess what? I'm gonna regroup and I'm gonna come back for more because that's how politics is played in this country. So I don't care how that these these big corporations are now all of a sudden on on board for Black Lives Matter. I'm just thinking about how can we now use where they are. Yes. The better to better our communities. Yeah, and I think that's the that's the exact same point that I'm trying trying to ask and make here is that yes, this recognition is good, but now understanding that, and I love you, I love that you brought the point that 60 percent of white people are seeing racism for what it is now, that's and a big using problem, yeah. that's that and, and using that as and we're going to say that using that as almost kerosene in this in this instance to really ignite this flame around okay you understand it. Now, how can we work together to mitigate the impact of racism in our country? And so it it goes back to what you're saying, like, how do we even, we've got to ask those questions. We've got to poll and then use, again, the nerds in us, use that information as power. I mean, I love that because as I sit up here and I, you know, I get upset watching how people are defacing Black Lives Matters murals across the country. 
but knowing that people are still calling me every day, you know, whether whether it's a, a, a white venture capitalist who says that I want to work with Camelback Ventures and entrepreneurs of color and women because we we feel like we're not investing enough. And there are untapped entrepreneurs who are doing amazing work that we actually didn't know about, but we want to bring them into the fold now. And so, or when there's yes. an advertising company out in San Diego who says, look, you know, we don't target enough of black and brown folks and we might be missing out yeah you've been missing out because if you if you polled us if you understand the amount of money that we actually spend the revenue power that we have you would be thinking more about that right let's take advantage of this inflection at this inflection moment and i you know and one of the things that i i talked about on on morning joe the other day is let's own it Right. Uh, one of the things is we every election, there is a group that of voters that that they popularize and is, you know, the soccer mom vote, et cetera. No, 2020, let's, let's, it's going to be the George Floyd voter. It's going to be about racism is on the ballot. You know, racism is on the ballot 2020. And we need these voters, these George Floyd voters, these black and brown people who are even more upset and and boiling over about racism and discrimination in this country to now join alongside with with a new and expanding coalition of middle American whites who are going, oh my God, this is not right. And let's make it better. Yeah. And, you know, as I sit on this couch in this little small apartment in New Orleans in, in the summertime when there's a hundred. I love New Orleans. Years. I miss New Orleans. Man, look, and I'm about to uh, look, I'm about to leave New Orleans. I got 17 days and I'm out out after 15 years, I got 17 days here in New Orleans. But, you know, I think that, and I haven't, and to be honest with you, Cornell, I couldn't bring myself to watch the video. I, I just, I, I can't bring myself because you and I both know, you know, being at James Madison, you know, growing up as young black men in Tidewater in Norfolk, in Virginia Beach, seeing that, you know, you know, watching death, right? And, and seeing it in, and how do I say this? Not as vivid. We didn't see it. We heard about it. And in sheer instances, you know, we might have seen it. But what we have now is, is, is that we can see death in real time, mm -hmm. right? In, in real time. We have the ability to see this man be lynched, to be murdered, to be killed in real. And I could not bring myself to watch it, to listen to him yell out for his mother's name. Like this is just the information because every time the video comes on, I turn my head because I know that we as black men internalize so much, Cornell. Like it doesn't matter the rungs of success, right? The weapons that we choose to fight, we still internalize this from a mental health perspective. So I could not bring myself to watch. And so my question to you, Cornell, is that as we work through all of this, you and I wake up black and male every day. What is our role? What is our duty right now, right? To bring about seismic change. I'm not talking about every day, seismic change in our communities and around the country. What do we have to do as a collective? That's real powerful. And brother, I haven't watched it all the way either because I, I can't. I like you, I cannot. Because you are watching murder. You are watching a lynching. But the power of that, of, of those almost nine minutes, has changed America in a fundamental, in, in a way that we have, in, in, in a quickly a way that I, I could not even imagine. Watching uh, a Black man being murdered, being lynched, 
being murdered casually by the police. It's sad to say it, but it was an awakening and inflection moment. And, and it's, it's tragic that he had to give his life for that. But his death is not in vain not because, in vain. We're seeing, because we're seeing changes happen across the country. I think our responsibility, look, I, I've, got, I've got two boys in, in college now. And which is crazy because I'm 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 not 30 yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we've got to teach them and instill in them what's right and 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 the fight and to carry on. Right as as the torch has been passed to us, one percent, <laughs> we must pass that torch on to to our to our young people because the struggle never stops. And look, the you know King. And all those brothers and sisters from the civil rights movement in the 60s, our hearts and, and prayers go out to, to Representative Congressman Lewis, who's battling cancer right now. But that man got beat upside the head. Upside the head, brother. On that bridge for change. And the struggle continues. The struggle doesn't end. You know, you think you got to, you think we, you, you win a battle and you get the rest. No. The battle for democracy is ongoing. We, we must always fight for freedom and for voice and for democracy. It is an ongoing war with the darkness, with, that, with the ideals of fascism and, and greed. And right now, when you look at what so many of the state legislative, legislative bodies, like in, in states like that you're in right now, that are trying to make it harder for people to vote, that are trying to disenfranchise people that are doing everything to undermine one person, one vote in order for them to hold on to power. You understand that the fight that our ancestors have been fighting since they they brought us ashore here continues and that we must arm our our young boys and our young daughters, our young people with that understanding and and the tools to carry on that fight. Yes, yes. So that's what I think. Yeah, you know, what I think about in that statement is that our civic duty is so powerful and revolutionary and the simple act of casting your vote, right? The simple act of <laughs> casting your vote. But, but I almost think as I say that Cornell, what you just said, it is not a simple act. No, it is not a simple act for many because we think about the inequities in voting and how laws hamper Policy. This whole conversation has been couched in policy, how policy initiatives are being enacted or have been enacted that hinder black and brown folks from going out and exercising what in my privileged state, because that's what it is. My, what, I, what I just said was a simple act. It is not a simple act. Lord, no, it's not. No. And I think, you know, if I, if I think back to Selma and I, I think about John Lewis and what they were fighting for. The simple act of me going it was not simple at all. Like, was not, I mean, literally, the one of the hardest things to do was to exercise your representation as an American citizen. And guess what, people? I just said that. I just said that. As an American citizen, the inalienable rights that were given to me, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Oh, I'm sorry. It was, actually wasn't given to me. It wasn't given to my ancestors, right? We had to take that. We had we're, to take, we're still taking we, it. Right. We had to take that. I'm sorry. Voting Rights Act needs to be renewed. Okay. <laughs> this is why I love talking to my boy, right? <laughs> you know right. Because we check like th- this simple act. And 
I think about that this privilege. I ca- I called it a simple act, Cornell, because I can pull out my ID, right? I'm a citizen. I've been a citizen since May 20, 1971. I remember being in the barbershop and getting registered to vote actually in a black barbershop, right? You know what I'm saying? When I can still when I can still get a fade, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> when, I, when I can still get a fade, right? And have been carrying that and have, and have done my best to vote in every election possible. We'll drive home, like we'll drive home to Virginia to make sure that my vote is cast. And so we have to fight. And I, I guess the point that I'm waking because I got long-winded a little bit is that what we teach our children is that you have to go out and exercise and fight for that ability to cast your opinion and belief and theoretical viewpoint. Because if you don't, and if you don't fight for that, you will be marginalized. You will continue to have policies that are inequitable, that hamper your ability to create and live in livable communities where living wages are disrupted and discounted in communities that look like you and me, you know? Yeah. Uh, Yes. Well, and one, and, one, and one last point on that is, and, and this is not my original ideal, but but to bring about change, if if in fact power concedes nothing, so to bring about change, whether and and again, and to bring about policy prescription to certain issues takes force. And voting, to your point, that string on and put a uh, underline under your your point, voting is an act of force. It is an act of force, and the end where we started. It is an act of force that can bring that has the ability to bring about a revolution because it has the ability to bring about change and bring more people's voice and representation to the table. It is an act of force. It is an act of force. So you know that's going to go on the tagline, right? <laughs> when I'm when I'm promoting, when I you know, and your um, your executive assistant sent me this great picture with your robust greatness that you got going on. I don't understand this, right? That this brother has all this hair and it's white, right? You must die. But <laughs> voting is an act of force, which is contrary to what I just said. This simple act, it is a it is an act of force, and we must continue to go out. Let me let me push forward. I was going to say pull back, but let me push forward. What we saw in 2016 was a re- was was you're right. Voting is an act of force. What happened? What what? So I, I'm sure that you've gotten asked this a number of times. The polls the polls were in Hillary's favor. Was there a miscalculation? Yeah, miscalculation. Excuse me. That Mitt Romney did. Did, did Hillary have the same miscalculation that Romney did in 2012? That happened in 2016. How we we how did we give this person four years of reckless abandon on our country? Well, that's a lot of different variables, and it was the perfect storm. Look, Trump Trump is a backlash to to the first black president of the United States of America. For a lot of people who are playing the zero sum racial game, let's understand what Barack Obama represented. Barack Obama. Let me. I'm gonna take you back before I go forward. Barack Obama, people thought of, and there were articles and writing about it after election day, it was like post-racial, this ideal of America being post-racial. We've, we've had some tremendous racial breakthrough. There, Barack Obama did represent a breakthrough, but it wasn't a post-racial breakthrough. It wasn't a change of racial attitude breakthrough. Barack Obama garnered the same 43% of the white vote on his way to a majority that John Kerry garnered on a way to a loss. The difference between Barack Obama and John Kerry wasn't more white voters breaking for Barack Obama. It was a couple of million more black and brown people. 
And what Barack Obama's coalition represented is the ascending America. It represents the changing face of America. And the millennials in a generation, America is going to go from a majority, it's going to be awfully close to majority minority country. So what Barack Obama represents is a breakthrough in demographics. What Barack Obama represents is for the first time in this country's history, and so we won 43% in, in 2008, we won even less in 2012, we won roughly 39, 38% of the white vote in 2012 on the way to his second majority win. What Barack Obama represents is, is, that, is the changing demographics and what that power means. Barack Obama for the first time in our nation's history, the vast majority of white voters can say, I want to go this way and the country go in a different direction. That is huge. And look, the guys like Atwater and his Nixon campaign friends who came up with the Southern strategy, Southern strategy is the most diabolical, but the, but the most, most successful political strategy in American history. It was a simple strategy of pitting poor whites against black and pushing racial resentment. Right. So for the first time, the wolf wasn't at the door. The fear of I'm going to uh, pull back from from our college days of uh, public enemy, you know, for the fear of a black planet. For the first <laughs> time, uh, the wolf wasn't at the door. The wolf was actually in the house. Black and brown people had decided a president along with the coalition of a 38, 37% of white people made up a majority. Now, what does this mean historically? Now, and, and, and you can stop me from I'm going a little too deep because here's the problem. In no other modern Western powerful democracy has power gone from the majority white people to brown people. And if in fact power concedes nothing, we are at a very interesting and unusual place in the history of democracy because we're going to find out if what we really believe in is one person, one vote in democracy, or do we really believe in one group holding on to power? And so Trump was a backlash to the changes that were happening in the country. And the polling, and, and, and look, Carper, the, the polling wasn't so much wrong because here's our narrative was wrong. Hillary in the force two way Hillary was always at 50% or so in the force two-way, but it wasn't a force two-way race. It was never a force two-way race because of third-party candidates. And we all, by the way, we know what the Russians were actively doing right. to push the protest vote, quote unquote. And we heard a lot of young people and young people of color, you know, pro saying they were going to protest their vote. They weren't going to decide between the lesser of these two evils. And, and we also know the Russians interfered and pushed that a certain a certain segment of our of, of our coalition to third party voting, and Hillary's loss was right in the margins of those voters who voted for Barack Obama in 2012, but voted third party in in 2016 because it goes back to that purism conversation mm. about allowing the good to be the enemy of the perfect. Like I, I got to take a little pause, man, because. <laughs> <laughs> It's a wonderful lesson in, in in understanding around like attitudes, right? And how attitudes shift very quick, can shift very quickly. And it was interesting to hear the the underscoring of both of President Obama's wins and 
and how this coalition of people came together. Because on the other side, in 2016, you saw a coalition of people come together and that coalition, as you said, now we have to see with our country, one person, one vote, or do we maintain a group having power? And this is gonna be a very, a very interesting election from that vantage point because as you, you and I both know, power is electrifying, yeah. pa right? Power says that I can stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot someone <laughs> and I will not lose a single, right, constituent. Power That's says, brother, that I can I can put out PPP and and give it to to a lot of my friends and homies. Right, a lot of my friends, <laughs> a lot of my friends and homies. Power says that the Russians are killing U.S. soldiers for bounties, and we brush it aside. Yes, power, and so it it is so interesting. So I, I know my revolutionaries are going to ask me, like, why, why didn't you ask this question? Why didn't you ask this question, right? So in my mind, like, you're the man, right? You're the person who probably has a crystal ball into this next election, the 2020 election. What does Joe have to do to win this election? Shit, I don't, I don't have a crystal ball, brother. But I will, I will say this. It's not about what Joe has to do. It's about what we have to do. Mm. Donald Trump is an existential threat to our ways of life, especially if you are a minority and if you're a woman, and to our values and our culture. Biden is not a perfect vessel, but he is. But, but, but what man walking other than Jesus was? Right. <laughs> right about that, brother. So again, let's not get bogged down in the purity test, but can we negotiate with them? Can, can we have conversations with them? Is he more on our side than, than Trump? almost on every issue. What issue is important to, to people of color and to, and quite frankly, to middle America that Trump is more on their side than, than Joe Biden? Is he 100% on where I am on every issue? No, but, but who the hell is? That comes back down to politics, right? And you gotta play politics because power concedes nothing. You gotta, you gotta be an active participant in politics to get what, in fact, what you want from it. So to me, it's not even a question about Joe Biden. It's about what we're going to do. And it is about whether or not we are going to continue that struggle that, as you mentioned, Congressman Lewis got beat upside the head for, that so many of our, our parents and our grandparents got beat upside the head for and, and bled for and cried for. Are we going to use our force to make things better for our communities? Or are we going to stand on the sideline and complain and bitch and moan about it, right? Who who are we? And especially for for you for your audience, this is about black men. What's our responsibility to protect our community? Don't we have a responsibility to use our force? And if voting is force to bring about change and actions, don't we have a responsibility to use our force to protect our communities? So to me, it's not about what Joe about Joe Biden. I know where I know who Joe Biden is. That Joe Biden's a good man. He's not, he's not perfect. Again, no man is. But this is about us and us using our force to protect our communities. Yes, yes. Brother, I'm about to tear up, man. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, because you're, you're right, man. It, it, is, is, it is us coalescing together and bringing about change. Uh, you know, what was the term that you said that Donald Trump is a uh, existential threat? 
He's an existential threat. And we have to use to 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 eviscerate an existential threat. We have to use our force, and that is the ability to vote, right? To go out and to be and to be civically engaged. And I talk so, you know, fervently about not just the presidential election, Cornell, that they are yes. there are critical races down the ballot that still yes. impact, right? Because you know we talk about this on the show uh, when I was in the studio. All elections are local, right? That they have this, they have this local impact. And if you don't believe that, then you're 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 misinformed, you're ill-informed about the impact that policy. And so I've said this on a number of shows, and Cornell is that I'm all about taking down Confederate monuments, right? I am all about that. But it's not like I'm gonna like I'm gonna I'm gonna sell my horse, I'm gonna bet the farm, I'm gonna go all in about Confederate monuments being taken down. Because when Lee's statue was being taken down in Louisiana and everybody was up in arms, the Louisiana state legislator was creating the Blue Lives Matter law. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. You know, right. And so go ahead and take the statue down. Guess what? If, if I resist, if, if the perception of me resisting arrest happens, it is a hate crime in Louisiana. A hate crime. That shit and is you know, crazy. Yeah. You know the consequences of a hate crime. And so, go ahead, brother. The most draconian things being done are actually not being done at the federal level. It's being done at the state level. It's being done at the state level, brother. Look, Cornell, you know, my listeners, even myself, you know, I always think about why do I do this show? Why is it so important to me? And from a hubris perspective, I do this show just for me, right? I don't care if anybody else listens. (laughs) I get to listen to brothers like yourself brothers like Dr. Maurice Scholes who come on my show and just kill it, like rip the show apart, right? <laughs> that, that They just rip, I mean, just literally rip the show apart. Like this is why there are amazing men in the world. And this is why you are doing amazing things in this world. This is why you are revolutionary. This is why you are clearly the 1%. <laughs> you are clearly the 1%. Who knew running around campus in the cold when it was really cold at Madison, right? And them, and them little thin coats and both of us skinny as hell at the time, right? Right. Talk about what's up 1%. Who knew? Who knew, right? That this 1%, right? That we were going to try to do some good in the world. We spoke it into existence. We, we tried. Spoke it into existence. Look, brother, I appreciate you, man. I, I love you as my friend and as my brother. And I'm happy to see all of the movements that you're sparking in the world. But I also know I love to drink and smoke a good cigar, <laughs> right? To, to, look, to port sit at homecoming. Let me tell you, if, if, look, just look, let's, let's push all the seriousness aside. One of the best times I've had in recent memory was going to our 25th class reunion uh, a couple years ago. We, we Airbnb'd a house four bedroom house, right? All these things going on on campus. We sat outside on that porch and drank and laughed and talked about being black men and what it was like for us. Joys, toils, trials, laughter, food, everything. And that meant so much to me because, you know, the struggles of life were happening. And to be able to have that moment of camaraderie with you and Brian and Paul, brother, those are, those are, those are the moments that you look back and say, I got to keep, t- I got to do those things again. And again, and so it was, it was just as important to us as it was to you. And and we all need that as men. We all we all need that. You all sort of support group. 
hell, I, hopefully we can do it again this coming yeah, year. Man, you know, <laughs> we, we, we definitely need that. We, we need those times when we, we can gravitate to each other. Laughter is a panacea. And when, when brothers can get together to, to reminisce about old times, to, you know, how we lived it up in dorms, doing nefarious things, all those different things, and, <laughs> you know, good times. Look, it's man. okay to need each other, all right? And that's one thing I think is important for us men. It's okay for us to need each other. I need it you, is. and it's okay. Yeah, you know, we have needed each other for a long time. We've been able to rely on each other, and it is a blessing. And I want my revolutionaries to hear us talking like this. It is a blessing for Black men to talk about being together in community. It is, it is, it is healing. And so gratitude to you, Cornell. I don't need to tell my listeners where they can find you. Just Google Cornell Belcher and <laughs> <laughs> you'll be able to find it. I mean, he dropped so many gems. Like I was on Morning Joe or you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Joe Scara and, and Mika Brzezinski, you know, and all of this. So check out Cornell Belcher when you can on any, any opportunity, whether it's CNN, MSNBC, on The Morning Joe, wherever Check him out because his brother's going to drop knowledge. Make sure you subscribe to the What's Your Revolution podcast on all your podcast medium. And as we say here at the show, please make sure that you can answer what we think is the most thought-provoking question of your life. What's your revolution? We'll talk to you soon, everybody. Peace.